So, hi, Theresia and Guyan. So, I, I suppose, and Guyan is not pronounced perfectly, right? Good word. Say it. Say it. Say, 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 please Wayne. say your last name, What? how it's pronounced perfectly. Wayne. Wayne? Wayne. Okay. That's how you say it in Vietnamese. Okay, Wayne. Okay. Then I was completely wrong. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, okay. So, what was your first computer? Gosh, the first computer I remember fiddling around with was uh, an APA 2ES. Um, with the blue screen, yellow um, fonts. Uh -huh. uh, our household did have a, uh, was a 386 or 886 machine. Okay. And I remember that taking about three hours to install the OS and many more days to get it, all the other applications up and running. And it was a, a huge box that took up the entire dining room table. Okay. Um, what you did with it? That was my... Um, that was my dad's cousin's computer at that time, and he was <clears throat> trying to set it up to run a business. So that was his part. The Apple yes, I my brother was uh, doing um, computer science at that time, so that was his machine that he worked on. And I, of course, uh, when it's not being used, uh, took it to either play games or to do my homework. Oh, um, okay. So I was younger at that time when that came out. Yeah, I, I guess so. So, uh, what games you you like back then? Wow, well, games I like and I still play is probably Minesweep. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why Minesweep's good. Solitaire came in a few times here and there. Um, and I don't know if this is strictly PC or just games in general, but you know, Tetris has always been a classic for me. Okay. Um, so, so you're not an avid gamer. It's just uh, no casual gaming, right? Yeah, I, I did get into gaming a little bit with my brother and uh, ended up staying you know, up until four or five in the morning and yeah. got into trouble many times and, you know, not having adequate sleep. So it wasn't really good for me to uh, get into games as much as they did. So you played uh, Minesweepers all night? No, that was more my personal time. I played with them on like the Atari machine or Nintendo. Okay, uh, uh, that's what I grew up in. Uh, okay, uh, which games you preferred on Nintendo or Atari? So, what was your favorite game? Gosh, uh, yeah, you know what? I just got the Atari, um, the new one that just came out. Atari. Um, and I was, yeah, it was like flashback version. Okay. Uh, so uh, I was playing Froggers and a couple of other games on there, but Froggers the one I remember playing the most. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, great, this is like my, you know, so nostalgic, great gaming. I put it plugged into my 4K TV. Mm -hmm. I just have big, blocky 4K bits of game pieces. <laughs> it was yeah. <laughs> crisp. So, like, uh, um, I, I suppose uh, the one pixel is like one square centimeter, right? Yeah. So it's just giant pixels that I saw. I'm like, huh, didn't uh -huh. think of this when I bought the game. <laughs> okay. So, um, and... How you started to do something more creative or serious with the computer? So I don't know your first, you know, batch script, batch script, or whatever. Just you know, um, except gaming. Well, I got into well, I took a program class in high school okay. uh, doing pes. That was Pascal. Mm -hmm. If anybody still remember that is, yeah, uh, you know, programming calculators and small things for homework assignments. Yeah, I actually um, started with. Uh, I think the first one is, of course, basic because my machine shipped with basic, but the next one was Turbo Pascal, actually. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's so I, I took that and then, uh, you know, to college and expanded to a little something else and start building websites and 
fiddling around with all that. Um, didn't do anything too seriously. Uh, I was more into learning about how the brain works, so kind of deviated and, and start studying neurobiology and looking at psychological developments and education uh, and basically how people behave and become who they are. Interesting. There's even more interest in computers. So, and uh, as you started, you know, with the computers, as you got the uh, programming uh, classes at school, were you excited about programming or was it just, you know, just another, just another lesson or was it something special for you? Good question. Um, it taught me a lot it, it, in terms of, you know, what it takes to get things to run on a software level. Uh, it also taught me that I don't want to be sitting in behind a keyboard 24 seven, like my brother who locks himself in the room day and night. Um, <clears throat> that's why I, I went to the neuroscience part, because then I want to learn about what makes people tick. Helps me understand what makes developers tick and their focus and their concentration is part of their success. To some degree, there's a level of OCD and competition that is um, in a developer's mindset that helps them become a successful developer. So I took it from that perspective. Um, I, you know, understand what it takes to get things done, but I don't want to be a part of that building block. I want to be a part of the bigger orchestration part, helping developers become successful in what they build and building it into a, a broader picture in terms of, uh, you know, having um, features is not enough. You need to have a product or a um, solution that people want. Uh, and I think sometimes developers get kind of in the mindset, I need to get something running, but they don't understand the user experience around it. Uh, That's interesting. So, so, so you learn programming at school and, and you observe your brother and say, okay, this is not what I would like to become. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then you started neuroscience, right? Yes. That's incredible. So, and okay. So, if you could summarize that, so what what you actually learned, just brief. So so um, what was the most surprising thing you learned? Maybe this way, put it this way. Uh, with respect to people or computers. Let's start with people. So I, I would say people, neuroscience, people, developers, somehow computer related. So you know, you, you said you studied the behavioral part of 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 humans. So what was the most surpri surprising thing you learned during your study? Uh, well, there's always that. <clears throat> excuse me, Na uh, nature versus nurture thing and how people uh, become who they are, uh, what they learn, what they're born with innately. Um, some people foster that type of, uh, you know, if they have supporting parents and a nurturing environment, they can become very successful. Uh, there are people who maybe lack the resources and they don't uh, necessarily see themselves achieving more and they get stuck in that mindset. Mm -hmm. The uh, environmental factor really attributes to a person's behavior, uh, their psychological well-being, and their ambition and motivation to do what to do with their lives. Because I've seen <clears throat> a lot of smart people who don't apply themselves uh, for various reasons. Then I see people who are probably not the best and the brightest, but they work hard at something and they get it done. Uh, and maybe it takes a longer bit of time, but they actually uh, accomplish something. And that has to do, you know, that's the, the nature part of it. You have the intelligence or you don't, you have the aptitudes or you don't. And then the nurture, it takes you the next step further mm -hmm. uh, where you want to actually do something with that. And it feeds into uh, family life. 
uh, the culture, the environment, uh, the exposure that children have uh, to some of these factors. Um, going through college, I volunteered a lot to teach kids from, uh, you know, to uh, reach out to children with uh, underrepresented uh, minority groups uh-huh. to help them get into uh, computer science, uh, especially girls, because a lot of these girls I ended up talking to, they don't think they can do much with their lives because their parents taught them that they're supposed to go to college and uh, find a husband or they, you know, their brain is not meant to do computers or science or math. And you have to work around this stuff. And you can see now there's a huge change in women in technologies because people are embracing and understanding and sharing and helping each other grow. That wasn't around 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Girls were marginalized. So I learned, uh, I guess the short answer to your question is our cognitive ability, the way we do things, are highly impacted by our environment, people around us, and programs that are in place to help us achieve more. I have also my my own little theory. So, um, what I think, what can also happen if you if you grow up in um, a perfect environment, and uh, your your parents are really supportive, it could become boring, you know. So they are, this is not that exciting anymore, and you just learn a little bit, and then then you just you know give up. But um, if you get us some kind of support, but uh, it's not like you know your parents push you to do something with computers or programming, then it could be more exciting because I don't know how to, I know I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, but <laughs> my observation is that uh, it is really hard to control children, right? Because they they would like to have their own mind. So it is a, a little bit tricky, you know, to be over-supportive. And of course, and, and the, the other thing is, uh, you, you mentioned girls. Uh, what I never understood, because uh, computers could be the perfect thing, you know, for, for girls because it's creative it is very creative it is you know um clean there is no difference between if you just you know look at the machine it is uh you know whether it is a um, man or woman doesn't matter everyone can use you know computer in the same way basically so you have you know the same keyboard and the same mouse so it could be actually the perfect tool you know to 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 have fun with it right so if you just you know uh, and, and and this is unfortunately uh, somehow it, it didn't work out, right? <laughs> so, uh, what, what you're saying makes perfect sense and is very objective. Uh, if you take out all the environmental factors I mentioned earlier, yeah. so if a, if the girl say have money and time, sure she can teach herself and learn how to do something. But if you're growing up in an environment where you're uh, basically tasked to serve more the family uh, routine yeah. things. Uh, and maybe they, you don't have the opportunity to go to college, or if you go to college, um, you're not encouraged to take the math, science, and the co- computer science classes. Then you don't get the appropriate training to be a classical, you know, developer from an education perspective. Yeah, this is what I so, get. Yeah, but which is unfortunate. Yeah. So the, the environment is the problem, but computer could become, you know, the perfect, you know job for everyone so this is what i wanted to say because you know it's not oh, like yes. you have to work all the time with a drill or with a hammer or whatever it is like you know a, a clean thing which you can just use and if you are creative and smart or you have the attitude to work hard um you could achieve something and have a lot of fun so this is what i wanted to express of course you know the environment push yes. you in different directions so you have to really work harder as a girl to be to to, to achieve the same but uh, yeah uh, this is what is unfortunate. But um, I didn't know that you actually studied neuroscience, which is uh, which is amazing. Um, I'm a properly even a special character because 
uh, I got a computer and I really liked the machine and I wanted to do something with it, but I had no idea what to do, you know? So he's <laughs> like, what do you can do with it? And I say, okay, I really like the machine, but you know, playing is a little bit boring. So, and I wanted to program, but I couldn't. So, um, so I started you know, to read, read my programming book, but it was in French and I don't understand French. So I tried to, you know, to, 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 to understand what's going on at, I don't know, I tried to write, you know, code in comments. So uh, I would say I was not really smart back then. And, but I was somehow fascinated with the machine. So it was not like, uh, I just liked, and don't, I don't know why. The same happened with Java. So you know, as Java occurred, I just liked Java without knowing why. I just, uh, I was like, still, I just like, enjoy Java. And if you ask me why, it's not like I said, it's a perfect syntax or whatever. It just the, the entire environment, sun, the logo, the coffee, everything, you know, just <laughs> really appealed to me back then. And the same was with computers. I liked the machine. And uh, back then, computers was the only thing which couldn't become boring. If you, you know, mm-hmm. back then we, we didn't have internet, nothing. So we get, uh, you know, video recorders and maybe phones. There was no smartphones and whatever you bought, it was not like it, it was, there was always a limit. What you can do with it? It, it become always boring, you know, because with video recorder, if you l- watch a movie once, it's enough. Um, m- maybe if I would play guitar or something, this would be more creative, but I couldn't. But computer was the only thing, okay, you buy it and then you have endless fun. fun. You can do whatever like. You can, you, can, you can play games or you can program. So this, this is fascinating to me. It was a complete different world, right? And right now, it gets a little bit lost because uh, the computer becomes just utility, right? So it's like... If you mm-hmm. have a smartphone, it's just you know, it's just a, just a phone. It's nothing special anymore. I would say it is greater back then. Back then, than, you know, uh, one square centimeter pixel on an Atari. But uh, but uh, it was still special back then because it was the first interactive thing, right? This is the thing in in TV. You just this was read only, and the computer was the the first thing mm. which you could also change something, you know. And now it becomes normal. This is a little bit a problem, I would say even. Yeah, I remember when I was using the computer, I really liked it because I learned how to type on a keyboard. I know, like, oh, I mean, sorry, on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And my my small little fingers would get stuck in between the keys all the time. Okay. So when you switch over to the computer, and you actually had a keyboard where there's no open space where your fingers just fall into. <laughs> that okay. was awesome. Okay, cool. <laughs> and then, you know, you have the dot matrix printers, and I was able to print out all my stuff on there. And it's just, the you know, like I, my first introduction to Windows Office, mm-hmm. uh, WordPerfect. Uh, I love that program. Yeah. yeah I'm, most people probably don't know WordPerfect is anymore. No, it, I, I don't know whether, I think I started with Word. The, uh, because my first Windows was Windows 90, 95, not not 311, so it was 95. And I think it shipped already with Word, as I remember. And uh, because I started when I was set, uh, setting Spectrum, then 8086, but it was just DOS. And then I got the Windows 95 machine. So, um, okay. Um, r- really interesting stuff. So now, um, how you got to programming? So you, you studied neuroscience, and you enjoyed the study, or you regret that? So, okay. Uh, I enjoyed the study, and it's... Uh... It really enlightened myself in terms of understanding what, uh, how people think drives, and it applies to daily life and as well as work. Uh, you have a, it helps you understand people's behavior and how to, especially when it comes to negotiation. Are you doing contracts negotiation? Are you doing sales? Are you doing marketing? Having the insight to p- how people. Uh, Perceive information, uptake information, dis- and make decisions on information 
will help you craft a better uh, message uh, and build better programs. So you're, you're um, a dangerous person, right? So you, so you can actually <laughs> look through the people and say, okay, uh, well, um, I know what you would say right now. So you something, so uh, you try to analyze people? No, so, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But it's fun, right? If you can do this, it's like Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Skills. It's, it does help, but you know, it's, there's one part where you know what's going on, but the other part is your own personality. Yeah. Um, like for me, I, I'm a very frank, candid person up front. So even if I know something, you know, you have to balance between intuition and and no knowledge or studied knowledge. Okay. Um, so th there's a balance. I mean, cognitive science is a, some, it was a new thing when I went to college, but now I think it's a very uh, known and popular subject for people to, uh, to learn about and study. Okay. And, and where you studied? So which, which, what college was it? Uh, University of uh, California, San Diego. Oh, uh, UCSD. Okay. UCSD. Nice. Yeah. But, and you programmed, you learned to programming at the university as well, or? Um, I did, and then uh, I uh, then I realized that I don't like programming all that much. Actually, I like <laughs> oh. the human aspect of it. <laughs> okay, and what yeah, that's why I joined us. Uh, I joined startups to work. You know, I, I like the whole creativity part of the things. Okay, and I like technology, so I picked something that married the both together. And I wanted to have my own company one day, so. I decided, hey, you know, like, why take a chance my own company? Let's join a startup and see what's going on there. So that's how I kind of got into the whole Java space. I joined a startup uh, with Culture Technology. They had uh, the Resin application server. Oh. Uh, and yes, Res and Res I started this. Resin application server. This was a, a great application server, Culture, right? This was the company, Culture. Yes. Okay. And uh, the Resin application server, and I think one point of time, even eBay used the Resin, right? It was like everywhere. It was very yes. fast and, and, and very nice application server. Uh -huh. Yes. So you're, you're familiar. I think that's when I first met you uh, at the server-side conference. Uh, it was with Caltra Technology. So they, they were struggling. They needed to take the Resin application server product and also uh, Corcus, which is their uh, PHP to Java engine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they wanted to take it to market, and they needed help. And... I joined, started up the sales and marketing department there and helped shape the company and brought visibility to the company. And really, that, this is the whole um, education part comes in, is understanding what the ecosystem's like, how to connect with people, what makes people tick, what interests people, and build that out. And also recruiting good developers to help build out the product and get the message out there. This is, I think, uh, uh, where I also learned uh, Riza Rahman. I think he also worked for Resin, right? For Culture. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this is, I mean. Yeah, yeah. and and then Reza went over to Oracle afterwards, and then I left and went to help uh, David Blevins with Tommy Tribe. Okay, okay. but so, you are not a developer, right, Teresa? No, I'm not a developer. Uh, I know enough to get in trouble, but I'm more about driving the business, the ecosystem, and making sure that everything connects and works. Okay, this, this is actually cool because I met you at conferences several times and uh, I had no idea what, what role you are actually playing there. So I said, you are like, you know, uh, what, what I suspected, you are like a chief hacker, you know? So you are you know, the, the <laughs> like the... That's the Jedi between the... Yeah, the yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. And um, and um, that's cool. So you started with uh, with Coucho. Uh, How is this could pronounce the company? Coucho, yes. Coucho. Culture technology. Culture technology. So, uh, yeah, it's an Argentinian word. 
Okay, and when you and and, and when you started at Caucho, when 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 uh, which year was it? Ooh, around two thousand seven or eight. Yeah, this is uh, th th then it was the service site. Um, exactly, it was um, where we met. And then, um, how you, how long you spent at Caucho Technologies? Uh, about four or five years. Okay, and then 2012-13, you started at uh, Tommy Tribe, right? Yes. Uh, so David and I, got, I was put in touch, and he wanted he had this idea about starting a company with a also an application server, and needed somebody to help with the business. So I, I joined him, and we um, two three months later we launched a website, a product, a business model, and uh, shared a booth with the uh, Gelastic at uh, Java One, and made our announcement as a, a new company in the application server space. And that's you know we. Uh, at that time, it was uh, the uh, Tommy uh, application server, mm -hmm. which is the uh, Java uh, EE certified version Tomcat, uh, mm -hmm. and we had a commercial support um, business behind that, mm -hmm. uh, also along with consulting and training, uh, and also participating in open standards like JCP and uh, with MicroProfile and Jakarta EE, what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so part of that, you know, uh, having a, an open source product, getting the community to support it and drive it for it, and also having the uh, dedicated commercial uh, support for businesses to use the product and have peace of mind that you know there's a company standing behind the product. And um, is for you Java MicroProfile and Jakarta something special, or you do, you just don't care? It was just a no lucky accident that you started with Coucho and then and Tommy Tribe. Uh, no, it's not that I don't care. It, it is important because uh, part of the whole uh, neurobiology and, and cognitive science thing I was talking about earlier is the people. Uh -huh. It's what drives the people. And this is a uh, Java is a very vibrant community. Watching uh, like uh, open standards come together, where there's a crowd of people from different backgrounds, different levels, different you know, some open source, some commercial products. Some are VP level all the way down to just individual developers get together and push for a technology standards uh, and help grow it and make it better for everybody else in the world to use and consume. It's just very inspiring to see this type of behavior. And I've, along the way, I've met a lot of great people and friends uh, such as yourself that, you know, I, I cherish this community and ecosystem very much. I um, As Oracle bought Sun at Java One, I had a chat with DevRel. And they say, okay, you are the Java Java guys, like, yeah, uh, one one of these, and they because they were you no know, the Oracle DevRels, and now they have to do something with Java, and they say, okay, no, what what is it, and how the crowd behaves or whatever, and I told them, whatever you do, no, don't 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 mess with the Duke, you know, the Duke is a special thing for for the Java for the Java people, and they say, yeah, we already we they did something and they uh, people became already angry. So it's funny to observe because you know the Java crowd is a little bit special because with you know Sun background now it is a little bit different because there's a a lot of young developers. But I would say five to ten years ago, you know the the old crowd they just knew Sun and they really liked Sun and liked you know the Duke and everything Duke and Sun related. And then as Oracle mm -hmm. took over, it was a completely different world. So this is why I ask you whether it's something special or not, because uh, I think it's still something special. Also now in Microsoft, I don't know whether you, you knew actually Sun, Sun Microsystems. You you, you observed the company or? Uh, or... Uh, I didn't work there, but my brother did work there. Okay, uh, very good. Because um, I um, there were some problems you know, with Microsoft and Sun, I would say 1997, I guess. Okay. Yeah, it was like the, something like this because... Uh, with the J++ stuff, but um, 
So I, I also didn't like the behavior. But right now, for me, Microsoft is the new sun. I would say this is one. This is a. It looks like to me like it. Uh, the behavior is similar to sun back then. So I would say it's just a complete different, different, different world. Okay. So you started a Tommy tribe, and 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 you already you recognize you know the micro profile in Jakarta E and JCP. I mean the importance of the specs, or for you was like marketing material and irrelevant, or what was your or, or how to estimate, you know, whether something like MicroProfile or Jakarta or JCP is important or not. So from marketing perspective. It is important to the fact that uh, you need to, you know, there's proprietary software versus your open source commercial software, mm-hmm. uh, open source software. And then you have to standardize uh, um, specs. And having that standardized spec really gives people the opportunity to not be uh, to choose what they want to run as their foundation for their business applications. And I think that uh, having that freedom of choice uh, is good for developers and good for organizations. And these type of open standards organization makes it happen. Yeah, that's important. Um, yeah, from marketing perspective, because if you are not a developer and you said, you know, you were interested in MicroProfile, Jakarta and, and, and JCP. And my question was, you know, how you evaluated or how you knew that you should, you know, push the marketing to, towards my, micro profile Jakarta and JCP direction, and not completely ignore it and just focus on whatever proprietary features of Tommy, right? You could because there are you you could mark if you are the marketing girl, you can do whatever you like. I suppose if your David would say yes, then you could just you know. Um, <clears throat> I need to clarify. There's the marketing. There's a the business aspect. So when your marketing is more of the planning execution of something that's already part of the strategy when it comes down to the business does this uh, something make sense like when you introduce a new specs that uh you know introduces modularity breaking mm-hmm. uh, some of the dependencies that affects our business model like if you're running an application application server on premise uh that new spec would then break that dependency it affects how uh the new application server behaves it affects how businesses uh, with application server products will then, uh, you know, continue to build and have the uh, business demand for their products. So the the when you're looking at these open standards, you need to look at the business behind it. How will it impact it? Uh-huh. So that's how I gauge what's important and what's not. Versus the marketing is more like how do you uh, get the message out there, what kind of message you put out there, who's doing what. So that's more the execution vehicle. So the strategy part is what interests me more than the whole execution yeah. part. But the strategy, this interesting way I ask you, for uh, for me was completely different, actually. So um, as I started with uh, Java, back then Java became very popular at the backends, and my problem was there were too many application servers. So Resin came later, but they were like, we already had a conversation with David Blevins, but there were no Bluestone, Gemstone, I think even Typestone, Silverstream, and Tenga, and I don't know, Sunspot Netscape application server. Uh, There was Netscape application server, there was the uh, Sun application server, and uh, everyone had an application server. I think there were more than 40 application servers, and they were completely different. So for Mm -hmm. me as consultant, it was impossible to understand more than two and be productive with it. And I knew that not all application server will survive 
So I was mm-hmm. uh, I was actually helpless. So so and, uh, and as Java E came out, or back then the name was J two E, or it 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 started slowly. They announced the first spec, you know, JMS, Java Message Specification, and I say okay. Then if I learn this, I will already understand IBM MQ series and the others. But uh, and then JNDI came out, Java na- native Java naming mm-hmm. and directory interface. And the, the thing with JNDI is I had to use Novell NDS, Novell Directory Services, and it was terrible for me because they had, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't like it. They, they, they use own data types and it was really hard, you know, to, to perform a simple lookup. But if I use it via JNDI, I had to learn just the API. It could hide a lot of things. So, and then came J2E. And for me, it was like, this is perfect because I learned the thing. And then I don't care about the applications of us developers. So for me, it was like... Um, I you know like how to call it a vacation extension program, right? So I had mm-hmm. more free time because I I didn't have to learn all the vendor specific things, which for me were bad because there's no added value, and everyone did the same a little bit slightly different. And with J2E, mm-hmm. I could learn at once the eighty percent and become successful. So you know the exactly yeah, but uh, this is the interesting because. Uh, Lots of developers don't see this this way. They say, okay, J2E is like complex or whatever, and I have to learn the things. And my, my opinion was always, you will have to, 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 to learn the thing anyway. You, you have to know what transaction is and what remoting is. You have to know it. But uh, J2E is like abstraction. You don't have to know all the product-specific stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm also applying the same thing for you no know, front-end. I don't like to learn the specific JavaScript frameworks. I just focus on the standards, what the browser provides. And I really like the approach because I don't have to relearn every three months, you know, a new learn, new framework. I can just, you know, I just focus on standards. So funny enough, for me, standards, I mean, um, more productivity. And I don't mm-hmm. know whether there's, maybe there's some theory. The interesting part is like self-constraining myself, right? So if I get the J2E APIs, I know what I have. And, I, and you know, the solution space is limited because it only comprises the specs which are shipping with J2E. If J2E would be not there, maybe it would be a little bit more confusing for me because I had to perform research before every project. You know, what is the most interesting or the best technology to solve the problem? But if you just have mm-hmm. MicroProfile, let's say, or Java, Jakarta E, you, you know you were successful before with the thing and you can move fast. And fast means, you know, if if we... After a few days, we have a proof of concept. Is a good enough? Whether it would be you no know, one hour less, but you will have to learn you know two days more, it would be no successful. And the funny thing is that the clients also like that because there were stories like you know ten years ago they hired me and now the application is still running and we can modern modernize the application without changing a lot. This is a, a huge deal, and um, so this is like complete different. Point of view as a consultant to the entire thing, and I didn't care about the standards a lot because this was another thing about my clients actually. So they they decided which licenses to choose or which vendors to choose, and I I always told them you know pick whatever you like. I would like just to program the thing against the API, and I was happy. So this was so Mm -hmm. I could reduce you know the amount of meetings, but it was the political meetings you know which product to choose, should we go, you know, with Red Hat? And I say, okay, if you have already a Red Hat operating system, pick, you no know, JBoss. If you have an IBM shop, pick, you know, Open Liberty. But if you are a Sun shop, just pick Payara. And, and they told me, 
was very successful on host systems, AS400, because I don't know why, on most of such systems, Tomcat was already available. So in some projects, they ask me, you know, what to choose and say, what do you have? Tomcat, yes, Tomcat is already running. So we just, you know, use the Tommy War, deploy it on the Tomcat, and we had Tommy. So it was in a few projects. Mm. So the cool story is I don't have, you know, to justify myself. I say, okay, you know, pick whatever server you, you have, and we can, you know, write the, the code against the API. Yeah, and, and, you know, like the people who actually knows the nitty-gritty details of the application server, that's only beneficial if you're working on the product or if you're a team dedicated to that as a consultant or as a company who needs to make a decision. Having something that can move fast, that's interoperable, you don't like, you know, maybe the company decide they don't want this vendor anymore or they want to consolidate vendors. They can then move to a different uh, application server and, have little configuration changes or you know updates and not have to rewrite everything from uh, this ground floor up. Yeah. So that that's why I think choices is important when it comes to decisions. Yeah. And um, do you know a, a theory well where self-constraining increases the product productivity? Is there something? No. Like... Tell me about it. No, I don't know. This was just my observation. Sure. So if you know. If the solution space is limited, you don't have to know to think about all possible solutions. You only see, you know, uh, what you have, and and you have to start to know to work with it, and then you become more productive. So I thought, you know, you as neuroscientists, you will say, me, okay, this was in the book from 1958 and written by <laughs> Alexander. Oh, well, I went to school yeah. a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you spent some time at Tommy Tribe, and then you know. You say, I don't like David anymore. Let's start with uh, Satya Nandela, right? So this is the... Well, that is not true. I never said that. But um, no, I, I, so I was uh, looking for, you know, what else can I do? And I at that time, I um, saw Microsoft at Java 1. I'm like, hmm, they look kind of lost. What are they doing here? Yeah. Uh, uh, you saw the, the t-shirts back then, you know, uh, Microsoft yeah. loves Linux, right? This is how they st how they started at Java 1, which is a bold. And, and I said, this is yeah. this is a great. I mean, they're a little bit crazy that they uh, know that they uh, that they show up with the stickers. Yeah. But beca because this yep. was like the very first time Microsoft was among Java developers. And I met, I think the name of the guy was Brian Benz. Can, could it be? Benz, Mr. Benz, yes. Yes, he was a really nice and told me, "Yeah, we we do Java." It's like, what's what's going on here? And uh, every everyone <laughs> was nice, and I say, "Okay, <laughs> what is it? Is it a fake Microsoft or what are they doing here?" Actually, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, somebody sold the t-shirts and logos. Yeah, uh, no, the, which is, I think everybody had the same reaction. Like, yeah. this is really weird. Why is, why does Microsoft love Linux? What Microsoft yeah. at a Java conference? Yeah. So. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I thought that was kind of strange. And then they had um, they had a sloth as their icon for you know the the Linux and Java thing. I'm like, oh, that is bad. Sloth moves so slow, yeah. and you're basically telling the world we're late to the game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who's doing your branding, but that's not the right way to go. Okay. So what I realized is there's you know Microsoft is serious. Once you get into the game. Uh, don't have any credibility, footprint, or history behind Java. Who's going to, you know, trust Microsoft when it comes to Java? So, mm -hmm. uh, I joined Microsoft to help change that storyline. And when you so joined that's Microsoft, what brought me here. when you joined Microsoft, when was it? Which year? Uh, I joined early 2018. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, at that time. The Brian Benz was there, and um, 
other people within the company, not anybody that I recognize from the community. Uh, and then uh, at that time, Bruno Borges and I joined. Uh, Bruno uh, joined on the DevRel team. I joined on the product marketing team. Okay. Uh, and then uh, now we both switch. We're both program managers. Uh, he's, in the, he's on the uh, developer uh, side of things for Java, and I'm on the Azure product team uh, working with Java. Yeah, Bruno um, likes YAML. It's nice. a little bit strange. He he loves YAML, but otherwise he's a nice guy. <laughs> Just joking. You've been reading his tweets lately, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, Bruno is a... I know Bruno for forever, actually. We met a uh, lot of Java once um, and before he joined Microsoft, so nice guy. And um, interesting. So and, and now you are the Asia Java girl, right? Can we... Uh, I'm... I'm the Azure yeah, Java person here on the uh, product team. So I partner closely with Red Hat, so working around uh, enabling JBoss CAPs to run in Azure. Mm -hmm. on a different, and Azure is a big cloud platform, so we have we cover anywhere from IaaS, which are the VMs, uh, all the way to a PaaS service, and also um, you know the AKS product, uh, OpenShift. I'm sorry, uh, our, Microsoft's AKS is OpenShift. Um, Azure Kubernetes service, and yeah. then Red Hat is the uh, yeah, you have both. OpenShift itself. Yeah, you have yeah. both. You and have then the... we, have, mm -hmm. we have the Azure Azure Red Hat OpenShift product, exactly. which is a collaborative product. Yeah, it's a yeah. mouthful. So what's, what's um, the bridge, for instance, between um, Asia and Java is really interesting. For instance, what you also have is called Asia Functions. And... Um, and the Azure function things, so it just looks like a command pattern in Java, but what you can do is, and by the way, the tooling, so the, you get an official Maven archetype from Microsoft, which is already interesting, right? Which uh, deploys the Azure functions to, to the Azure cloud. But um, what I actually did recently is um, I deployed a JAXORES resource, which is um, yeah REST endpoint. It looks like mm -hmm. application server, but it's actually... Azure function running on Java 11 in the Azure cloud. And um, it, and you could, for instance, even ship entire Quarkus as a Azure function. And then you, mm -hmm. it will look like Quarkus or Tommy or Payara, it doesn't matter, but it gets, you know, executed uh, and then goes to sleep. So it's basically stateless. So you have to be a little bit careful with the scopes, but it with request mm -hmm. scopes, it works. And pay as you go. So uh, you get a, several invocations for free and then you pay as a use so um this yeah. is no the, the 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 whole circle so we talked about the standards so what what you could do and um we did it in some some cases you can actually take an old java e j2e application and you would like to push it as quickly as possible to the cloud if the if the if the application was built reasonably you could you know you can deploy a fat Asia function, so it is a bigger function, doesn't matter, and uh, it would already run in the cloud, right, after a few modifications. So if a little bit careful with singletons, all that stuff, but in principle, it works in some cases. So um, yeah. this is actually an inter interesting story. And um, and uh, also the interesting tooling, right, with the Maven archetype that it creates, you know, the entire environment for you. And, um, or not, you, you can, you know, provision with Terraform first and on the and and override it with or or use it with the with the archetype and also i know um container instances azure yeah aci azure container instances i think is the name mm -hmm. also very convenient ACI. way yeah aci 
uh, also a very convenient way to run larger applications as regular containers. So um, so everything is already done. So what are you doing there? I mean, this is already works and, and works fine. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> well, we also have a, a service called Azure uh, App Service. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a PaaS type service and enabling JBoss to uh, run on there as a page-to-go image. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, uh, you have to run, you know, there. you can run, you can spin up the JBoss instance and dump all your application in there. You don't have to worry about getting licensing from Red Hat. You don't have to worry about standing up your own uh, application server. Everything's already done for you. And we're going to be implementing things like transaction and clustering uh, later on down the line. I can't give any timeline yet, but things like that. So when we when we have customers who are running Mix, uh, you know, .NET and Java, they can now run, start bringing their applications onto Azure that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and by working with also working along with customers, understanding their requirements, because it's not just the software layer. It goes down to you're running on IaaS, you know, what hardware layer, what kind of scalability, your, what kind of chipset that you want to optimize your OS on and then your workload. So there's different layers you have to work through. Um, so, yeah, the Java stuff looks like it's done, but it's not. There's so much more work we can do. And uh, we're continuing working with our customers to get that done. Yeah, of course. I, w- I was just joking because uh, mm-hmm. um, I think I, I, I started, I tried that in December uh, last year, and it only supported Java 8 Azure functions, and now it's already Java 11. So now it's, uh, it proves very fast. Do you actually know Mr. Ashish? Ashish Ch- I think it's pronounced Chabria. This is the, uh, it, it, it is, he is working as a product manager of Jakarta JMS on Microsoft Asia. So uh, I had on, on, on the podcast, and this was also a f- mm-hmm. funky conversation because what uh, they have on Asia, on, or they have, you have on Asia, Microsoft Asia, is the JMS, <laughs> complete JMS specification, the old messaging service is implemented in Asia. So I was really surprised. And I said, yeah, we do it, and it works uh, really nice. And um, what was Asia Service Bus is called? Yeah, so we, Microsoft is such a big product and we have the developer division uh, and then we also have the Azure team and within Azure you got, you know, different layers of products and services, hardware, software, so I I meet new people every single day here. Okay. And so, yeah, so uh, I don't know who this person is, but I'm not surprised it's done. Um, yeah, my pronunciation is... was terrible. Not even I know what. To, I had a conversation with him. Ashish is his first name, and the last name is C H H A B R I A. This is the if you if you would like to learn about something about uh, Asia people, this is the episode number one hundred eleven of 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 AXFM. So um, nice. You said J Boss and pay as you go. What, what it means is it like JBoss is serverless, so you pay per invocation, or what, what it means as you go, or you pay. Oh, <clears throat> so JBoss has traditionally been uh, more of like an annual subscription you pay for. Okay. Uh, and based on the number of cores uh, that mm-hmm. you use, uh, but with a page you go, so instead of prepaying for you know a thousand cores, and you may may not use all thousand cores, you can go to Microsoft and. You know, one day you're running a thousand VM, the next day you're running five VMs. You only pay for what you use. Ah. So the, it's a, a metered way of uh, financially, it makes sense. Uh, it's convenient and 
you don't have to, you know, in terms of ROI for whoever's cutting the check, you know that you're only paying for what you use, you're not prepaying and leaving it okay. idle. What you should what you should also do, support Whitefly. Support Whitefly, then it would be completely free. And uh, yeah. the customers could, you know, bring their own license. No kidding. So you could say, if you like, use Whitefly, because if you don't do this, what I did in a project, I ran Whitefly inside ACI. I can absolutely do this, you know? Right? Yeah. So th there's two concepts here. One is BYOS and one is pay as you go. Um, the reason why we have BYOS and page, BYOS is bring your own subscription and pay as you go is because of the integrated support component. Um, if you do Wildfly, you don't have that uh, commercial support that goes with it. You can certainly run it on any Azure services, but you're on the hook for your own support. Yes. So, but could you run it as conven conveniently as JBoss on Azure App Service? Or is it a, a secret source between JBoss and Azure App Service? You can run it. Um, well, we did have a version of it because with, it doesn't have the commercial support. Yeah. We couldn't meet our customers' expectation of fully supporting it from the uh, application, uh, the uh, infrastructure all the way up to the application server. Sure. That's why we selected the JBoss instead. So that way we can work directly with Red Hat if there's any issues when it comes to the application server, we work with Red Hat to resolve it for the customer. We don't have that with Wildfly. No, sure. Um, but uh, I mean, lots of projects are using Whitefly and, and then sometimes the my clients decide, you know, now we need support and they go to JBoss. So I would yes. say this would be a business opportunity for Asia. Say, okay, we can also you know, provide uh, Azure app service for Whitefly. So it, it is no support regarding the infrastructure. It's like shared responsibility model, you know, to say, okay, the runtime is uh, out of, it's not no more supported by Asia. It's just, you know, the... Um, the hardware virtualization layers and everything below. And uh, and then if so, you like, you can bring your own subscription and then you switch to to, to JBoss uh, to all the versions, actually. Um, yeah. So I actually uh, did some work with Wildfly on, uh, on the uh, Azure virtual machines and virtual machine scale set. So you can use Wildfly if there's a quick start for it. I launched it sometime last year. Cool. Uh -huh. uh, and you can t test, you know, play around. You don't have to worry about the licensing and anything. And you want commercial support, then you can sp do the uh, JBoss on the virtual machines and scale set. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can pick up the uh, support that way. And right now, it's only available as bring your own subscription. And then, you know, we want to take the next step further, and you want to have it more of a platforms as service type experience. Then you would go into app service and run JBoss there as pay as you go. Yeah. But so app service won't support Wi-Fi, right? So you don't... Currently, no. But this is one like a... hint. It would be great if it could, <laughs> right? So this is like what I can tell you, there will be a lot of clients or customers who would be interested in it. And even for st such like, you know, you have a huge companies and uh, you, you need some environments for development. So you could use, uh, you know, uh, a lot of environments with Whitefly and run the supported one in production, for instance, right? So it is just easier. And I mean, the other yeah. clouds are do do similar things, right? So the, you, you can, um, yeah, the, for instance, um, AWS, they offer Aurora, which is Postgres compatible, or you can get, you know, the real thing, RDS, which is Postgres, and you can, you know, run Oracle and, and bring your own license or just pay Amazon to run Oracle. So um, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, having uh, an completely, not completely open source, uh, an unsupported version of JBoss would be actually a great idea. It's the same for Quarkus. So some of my clients yeah, buy support for Quarkus, 
but uh, lots of clients just would like to start with the open source thing and then they decide you know, whether they need support or not. Yeah, I definitely bring that feedback to the, the app service team there. Uh, I, th I think there are some also programs that we offer to our customers to run it for free, kind of like a trial period. That's one way of dressing some of that, you know, I want to try it out and test it before I buy the solution. Yeah, but if you know developers, I mean, clouds are different, right? A cloud, I would like just, you know, to fire up the CLI and just, you know, run it. And, and mm -hmm. then, uh, but if there is a too much friction with the licensing, I wouldn't be interested. So um, before, I have to, before I would evaluate, let's say, app service with JBoss, I, I like JBoss, if you know, uh, I like Red Hat and I have very good relation to Red Hat, but for me personally, it would be very interesting to know, also for my clients, whether it is possible to run the same thing on Whitefly and Azure App Service. If this is not possible, so I wouldn't be interested in JBoss on App Service because this is too much dependence on, on licensing and all the thing model. Because for my clients, it's always, you know, they have the option, whether they, buy, buy, they have no time and money, uh, lots of time and no money, because if they have, you know, uh, no time and money, they buy support. And for some clients, mm -hmm. they would just like to support, you know, by patching the server by themselves. Perfectly okay. So you cannot, you know, force the developers. So that's, the, yeah. that's the problem with the, if you want to have the uh, app service uh, manage, the, uh, manage the instances for you, the users don't have access to, uh, to the uh, instance to do the patching. That's why we need the integrated support. Yeah, but you could, you know, they don't, I mean, patching, developers don't patch, as with this, the patching of Whitefly is exception from the rule. I would say mm -hmm. in, no kidding, I would say in one project out of 100, maybe someone patches the application server. This is not very common practice. What would be enough mm -hmm. to be able to choose the version? You see, oh, this version doesn't work, so then you use the next one. And if this doesn't work, then the you no know, go and to JBoss. This would be you no know, demotivation to start with the supported product. I would say. Okay, this is valuable feedback. Let me uh, uh, take it back to the team and see what we can do. Yeah, and uh, the same would be with Quarkus, right? So if your Quarkus is also hugely successful, and um, you could do the same thing with Quarkus. So you see, uh, you say managed. So what it means is you can just push a war or an ear. And it just installs mm -hmm. and starts. So it's almost like serverless JBoss, right? Yeah. Uh, Function is actually a part of the app service team. So yeah, drop the ear war file in there. It just runs. If you want to go scaling, scale it out, you use CLI or in the Azure portal. Uh, you have different options there. You can scale it horizontally or vertically. You can set limits. You can uh, just drag the scale out if you want. Mm -hmm. So everything is kind of like done in the back end for the customer. So you don't okay. have to worry about, you know, if customers have like a Black Friday event coming up, they can set the limit and don't really have to worry about all the failure, you know, the failure or something crashing. Um, and then we also have uh, app service is built on res resiliency in mind. There's, you know, uh, different regions, different uh, HA mechanism. There's uh, different disaster recovery. So things like that, it's all built in the back end, uh, kind of keep the customers from having to worry about that. And then there's also uh, app service has two types. One is a multi-tenant and one is a single dedicated tenant. Mm -hmm. um, ASV3 or Azure, Azure app service uh, environment version three 
that provides some isolations for customer who wants uh, a little more controlled security and single tenancy for their application. So there's a, there's app service is a very well thought out in depth uh, product that Azure to, uh, offers to our customers. And uh, it's more for, uh, for develop, it gives the developers uh, time back so they can do what they want to do and Microsoft take care of all the headache. And we partner with Red Hat, so they, if there's anything that comes down to the Java application server, then we can work with them to get things fixed. And, and by the way, that, the Microsoft and Red Hat uh, relationship is also great because um, if you happen to run Visual Studio Code, you know, um, most of the plugins, <laughs> Java plugins, are collaboration between Microsoft and Red Hat. I already also had chat with Red Hat to say, okay, you know, the testing in Java stuff, this is what Microsoft is contributing, which is great, actually, right? So, um, actually, uh, yeah. I was talking to, uh, I just had a call this morning. We're uh, going to uh, announce next month the uh, the Red Hat uh, Java server language uh, for VS Code extension. So that's going live next month. And we're doing, we're continuing to invest and collaborate with Red Hat to get this, all the toolings in there, all the support needed for Java developers. Yeah. I use actually so, Visual Studio Code most of my time right now because I do some JavaScript oh, that's work. Awesome. And, and, and in backend, I was too lazy to switch to Java IDE. I just kept using Visual Studio Code and it mostly works. So I use Visual Studio Code with actually the Microsoft plugins all the time. And um, what's also and funny, I don't know whether you're aware of Payara Cloud. People, Payara people, Payara yeah. server, Payara. I know Payara, but I didn't know they have a Payara Cloud now. Yeah, what I did. This is uh, Payara Cloud. It's a, a Kubernetes orchestrator. So they okay. have an application server. And the application server, there's the Payara admin server. It starts and stops Payara micros, which are pods and running in Kubernetes. And this Kubernetes happens to be AKS, Asia Kubernetes service right now. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, use told me right now with the Azure App Service, this happens just the second time. For me, the vision of application servers was, I'd, I focus on business logic, create a war on ear, then copy in somewhere, and it just runs. And now we have it twice on Asia. Payara Cloud does it with Payara, and you did it with Whitefly. And this is why I also know, I don't care about the server. I don't care. I don't want to fiddle you know, with the, all the installation. I don't care. And, and even... If you watch my presentations, I think even in the J4K last time, what I usually do, I unzip the server started and I forget about that. So and just push you know, all the time the wars. And um, and you achieved that with Azure App Service. And the, the funny stuff is the servers became serverless. Because mm -hmm. uh, you say, you know, they scale. So I mean, of course, I mean, if, if there is no, your application doesn't know about that. So you, you're just starting, you know, more instances transparently and the load is distributed among instances. And, uh, but I don't care as a developer. Yep. I don't have to implement that. And, and this is uh, yep. really great for productivity and portability. Because if I can just pick the application on premise, but then I will have to create the cluster by my own, which is not, not trivial in Jabo's case. So you have you know, to, to play with uh, InfiniSpan and, and, and create the caches and whatever. And, and you are just doing for me, which is great. But it happened twice. Payara Cloud on AKS on Asia right now. I had also podcast with them. And now you did mm -hmm. it with Azure App Service with Whitefly. Oh, sorry, JBoss, and soon Whitefly. This will be the next announcement, I hope. No, oh, and um, yeah, great. Yeah, well, then we also have it for um, uh, the Azure Virtual Machine Scale Set, uh, sometimes referred to as a VMSS. So you, there's a marketplace offer image. If you don't, if you still want some control of your, your application and want to do just straight VMs, 
You can deploy that. It installs the uh, JBoss uh, instance for you. Clustering, everything's already done, uh, even down to the OS. And you just drop your ear fi files in there and have that configured. Yeah, uh, I had already uh, chatted with Bruno about that, also on the podcast, and, and not about that, about Azure Container Instances. And I was a little bit sad that only one instance is supported. So you cannot just have two instances, you know, for scalability. So why you could just, you know, start at a second one, just just two, and uh, put a load balancer up front, and this would be just enough for 80% of the projects. And Bruno told me, no, just one. So, okay, it's set. But now it is set with the uh, scale sets. It sounds like, you know, yeah, this is the, the solution to the problem I had back then. Yeah, the virtual machine scale set. So you look, if you go to the Azure Marketplace, just type in uh, JBoss, uh, JBoss uh, Red Hat, and it'll come up. You can run uh, JBoss as a standalone uh, or as a clustered in virtual machine scale set. Okay, so now let's uh, focus on the on the important stuff. So your Twitter handle is uh, Rock Climber T. I suppose T is for Theresa, right? So yes. uh, are you a free climber? Uh, I am. I've been climbing since uh, 2000. Uh, since... It's my passion and my lifestyle. Very good. What did you do before? Oh, no climbing. <laughs> I went to college. Ah, for those okay. who can't see my video, I do. That's my rock climbing hat, and that's my tri cam and my cam for ah, climbing. I wondered because the hat looks like an egg. It's like, what is this? You know, the other one <laughs> was like a weapon. This it looks like you know an iron butterfly. And the other things, I say, okay, this is uh, hard to tell. So I, uh, okay, this is the, on the left side. I, I, I would know what it is. How good are you with climbing? So is this like different levels or what? I mean. There's different types of climbing. So um, I go outdoors and I climb uh, crack climbing, what we call traditional climbing. So as you follow up a crack system, you bring those hardwares hanging on the wall there mm -hmm. and you place them in. You put your carabiner and you clip your rope in and you go up. And that's how, in case you do fall, you fall twice that distance um, down instead of hitting a deck. Um, how so often that's happened what to I you? love to do. How often <clears throat> you are falling per week or per month or I don't know? I have never fallen tread climbing, but I've fallen plenty uh, bouldering. So bouldering okay. is where you only have your shoes and you climb and it's more uh, muscle and intense. Uh, traditional climbing, because you have to set up your gear and everything and protection pieces, you have to be more methodical and careful. And especially when you go out there and you set up your anchor point, uh, you got to make sure you distribute the load properly because, uh, or, you know, if you're in a sketchy area, you have to understand, you have to weigh your risk. It does, it's very uh, cerebral uh, than it is more muscular. Uh, bouldering, on the other hand, where it's more muscle and technique than it is uh, thinking. So it's a different type of climbing. But yeah, uh, and climbing I love it. I encourage everybody to Yes. Okay, but but, uh, but, the, but the free climbing stuff with the uh, with the falling, but secure falling. So you never felt secure. I've never. So there's two types of there's sports climbing and traditional climbing. Okay. So tra it's traditional climbing. You place your gear along the yeah. the crack In system. The traditional and your belayer clean it. Yeah, and traditional climbing you never felt. Never felt. Yes, I'm too scared to fall on that one. Okay. And I fall in sports climbing. You have to, right? Um, it's, it's sports climbing because it's like a competition. So in one point of time, you have to. No, no, no. It's more sports climbing. Is uh, somebody already went up on the route? They already put ah. the bolts and the hanger in there. So you clip it in there, um, and it, when you do that, you know it's the hardware's already there. It's secure, but you're subjective to the previous climber, whoever set the route. Oh. And if it's a tall guy who stood on a nice perch and put their clip, you know, 
five feet away, uh, I'm too short to reach that. So I have to stand on little crystals or whatever intermediary things and try to clip in. Okay. Uh, so it gets a little scary. Um, crack climbing, you're following the system, the crack system. So it gives you a little more flexibility and choice in terms of where you want to make your uh, your dance before you start placing your gear. Um, a little bit of meditation you know, through, during climbing, right? You have lots of time, so you can, you're alone. So it's, I think. It's very meditative, absolutely. And uh, what I love about it is the focus and concentration. Nothing in the world matters to you. You're so focused on that, and it brings a sense of clarity and peace to your mind. Yeah. This That's is what why I, I climb. This is what I suspected. So, and, and uh, okay. So you could also program, you know, but climbing is also okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, there's, climbing there's is more healthy than element. programming. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, now, see, there's a you're outdoor, you're with nature instead of being in your basement with a you know ten cups of coffee around you and But but I have you know a nice uh wallpaper with Big Sur, just a nice mountain, you know, very very nice. Just kidding. Yes. Yeah. J four K. So we met at J four K, so you're organizing already, right? Uh is it the hot phase of the Java for Kubernetes conference and one you are one of the organizers, right? Yes, I am uh, one of the organizer, founding member, board of directors, however you want to classify it. Uh, it is Java for Kubernetes, and it we started as originally a um, in-person conference because of COVID. We made it virtual, uh, and this year we decided to split into two virtual events just mm -hmm. because uh, there's a lot of virtual events going on. Mm -hmm. um, but what we want to do is uh, introduce a conference or a place for people to network to learn about Java and Kubernetes, but not get lost in the focus, you know, the Java only focused conference or the Kubernetes only focused conference. Mm -hmm. This is to bring together that hybrid uh, type of knowledge to that intersection and also talk about how do you bring Java into the cloud. So okay. that's why we have uh, J4K. Perfect. So thank you. It was really interesting. And I didn't suspect, you know, the the neuroscience part, which is even more interesting for me. So it was great. Well, I'm glad you find it interesting. Most people, when I tell them, you know, oh, I'm a human development major, they just look at me weird, like, what is that? Yeah, human development major, I would say this sounds boring. But neuroscience, you know, this sounds interesting. So it's always, you know, this is marketing skills. <laughs> you have to sell it. Uh, very good. Where people can find you? So at Rock Climber T, this is what I learned at Twitter, right? Yes, uh, Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at J4K. You can find me at Microsoft. Um, I in LinkedIn, of course. Uh, just Google or you know look for uh, Teresa Wynn uh, at Microsoft or Java, and I should show up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So thank you, and I would like to invite you back if or you just ping me if something interesting in Asia and Java space happens. I would really like to in invite you back and have a chat about what happens. In the Asia cloud. Sure. Same thing with you. If you find an interesting topic, I can definitely get you hooked up to the right people and you can uh, get a deep dive into what's going on there. So thank you. Bye. Thank you very much, Adam. Bye.